How do you have conversations about identity, about our backgrounds, about who we are, why we show up, why we work to make the impact that we want to make? My name is Matt Scott, and for the last five years, beginning on January 1st, 2017, I've had this project called Let's Care, which I initially founded as 180 Degrees of Impact where I focused on passing the mic to change makers who often go unheard and on more than anything else, showcasing the bright spots, the impact, the, the work that people are doing that often goes uncovered and unheard in mainstream media that's so critical to making our world a better place and being the change that our world needs to see. I started let's care when I did back in 2017 because I worked as a social impact project manager and storyteller and was thankful to have opportunities to work alongside the Australian government, to work alongside Nike and Walmart, with NASA as the global community lead and storyteller of the world's largest global hackathon, and with so many others. And what was powerful for me was that I saw all of these people working to make an impact in the world from all over the world. And yet I also saw that people like me, young people, black people, queer people, the things that I found myself showing up as weren't represented in those rooms. And that's one reason that I started Let's Care because I really felt that it was so important and I still feel like it's so important. I feel like it's more important than ever before to pass the mic to those who often go unheard because we can't be the change our world needs to see unless we do that. January 1st, 2017, there's no way I could have known that I would have been doing this interview project, Let's Care, for five years. I couldn't have known what the world would be. And over the last five years, we've seen a lot happen with our world, to our world, in our world. We've had a presidency in the United States that in large part has been damaging to the U.S. and thankfully has ended. We've had the police murder of George Floyd, which just in 2020 led to so many new conversations for a number of people and repeat conversations for folks who'd been screaming into a void for years. We had the Capitol insurrection just a year ago. And for me, all of these events are a reminder that despite the fact that I started interviewing people five years ago and have since interviewed 100 plus changemakers from around the world, that we need models for the conversations that the world needs because we don't know how to have conversations. We've been taught and brought up our whole lives that talking about religion, about race, about politics, about sex, that these things are taboo. And the reality is that that mentality that we can't talk about those things is damaging us. It's hurting us. It's tearing us apart and separating us. And I really want to make sure that I'm doing my part to help people have those conversations. And that's one reason that I'm so proud of 20s and Change San Francisco. 
Toys and Change is a film that I released last year and made alongside my friend Eric Dowds, filmmaker Eric Dowds. It's been recognized at the San Francisco Black Film Festival and Las Vegas Queer Arts Film Festival. And it really focuses on a number of themes, including using your talents to make a positive impact, creating a way out of no way, prioritizing diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice, the power of representation and storytelling, and having quote-unquote uncomfortable conversations about identity and impact. And so now for the first time, I'm releasing the full 20s and Change film here as a podcast so you can listen and tune in on the go to hear the conversations we're having, to think about the things that we're saying, and to really dive in and think about ways that you could be the change and your community could be the change that our world needs to see. So I'd encourage you to, to tune in. But more than anything, um, if you want to watch the film, you could go to letscare slash film. And I'd encourage you to share the film, share the conversation, and be part of passing the mic to those who often go unheard. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the film as a podcast. And until next time, keep impacting. like the first thing I did when I woke up was check my blood sugar and it yeah. was 350 yeah. which is like it's supposed to be at 100 so it's 350 yeah what and it happened because my pump battery died overnight imagine okay you have diabetes but imagine if you also were a woman on top of that or like a person of color on top of that also had you know something else in your life on top of that like mine might just be identifying with diabetes yeah. where for her her list is a lot longer. Yeah. And I think that's why it's really important to have conversations with a lot of different types of people. Something I'm really excited for this week is diving in and seeing the differences and how they affect people, but also seeing the similarities and the things that bring us together. I'm Deja Silas, as you mentioned before, and I am a San Francisco native. Um, I work for a nonprofit organization called DISH, which stands for Delivering Innovation in Supportive Housing. And my role here at DISH, I serve as an assistant general manager for the Auburn, which houses, um, which provides housing for adults who suffer from serious like health issues. And mainly, we serve veterans here. Mm -hmm. So my goal here, and my I feel like my job here is really important. And every day I try to build community with my residents here. Yeah. What role does homelessness have in San Francisco overall? As a native growing up in San Francisco, um, I would say like I was raised, raised in the Bayview district of San Francisco where I've all, like, I can live in an apartment and there'll be someone outside my door, yeah. like sleep outside. <laughs> oh, yeah. And the way that I was raised by my mom and my dad was like whatever she cooked, we provided for whoever was outside and um, mm. I would say like the role of homeless, homelessness in San Francisco is it, it's increasing yeah. and I would say that um, a lot of people are aware but like they turn like a blind, blind eye to it. I believe there are people who are starting to pay attention to it and who are aware and who are trying to make a change. Can you tell us more about even the, the room that we're in? I so see the community agreement on the wall yeah. for instance. Um, a lot of our activities take place here like all my classes 
take place here and we'll set up tables and bring in decoration and food and you'll see like a lot of people come out and participate. Yeah. So this is where all the action takes place, all the fun. <laughs> like what do you wish other young people knew about homelessness that you've learned? In general, I feel that I wish that people would have an open mind to it and say uh, like some can come to the situation with like fear of the unknown of like the unexpected of what can happen. But you can also look at the unknown with like an open mind and be open to working with someone because at the end of the day, we're all human, right? First one to get this Oh yeah, it's an honor. Thank you. It's interesting like going in and talking with Deja and then meeting one of the residents because I think, I don't really know what to expect. Like I feel like this whole trip, we're going to a lot of situations that we don't really know what we're walking into. We don't really know the people we're talking to. That was our first time. Deja's never really been interviewed about this work and we need to like really celebrate those people more. I'm excited for the rest of this trip. I'm excited for diving deeper. Where are we off to now, Matt? So we are off to Sausalito. We're on the bus right now and we're headed to uh, basically the Sausalito Ferry Terminal meeting Nathan Bowman who just graduated from San Francisco State University. Congratulations. He did a lot of work in school volunteering with an organization called Net Impact, which is all over the world. Yeah, it's gonna be interesting. Off the bus here and we got the Tesla, so clearly Salsalita is a different part of San Francisco. Super well off. This is on the other side of the Golden Gate Bridge. He said, I have seen the others and I have discovered that this fight is not worth fighting. On the bus ride over, I was thinking a lot about what question should we be asking ourselves? And I think the question that I'm asking myself coming out of the talking with Deja is like what impact does actually hearing those stories and interacting with someone who works in that situation actually have on us? And I've seen them others, and I will know other to follow me where I'm going. So when I graduated high school in 2014, I wasn't really too excited about starting out going to college. So I had a family member who said I could move over here if I went to some type of post-secondary education. So I came here, I went to College of Marin which is a, a small little community college in Marin County. I've lived here for five years and, and I love it. My interest in social justice is because I live here. I was only 18 when I moved here. Yeah. And, and really thinking back, that's pretty young. I think everybody from the Midwest wants to do it. So I did it and I'm, I'm really proud of that. Yeah. Um, and now I think I'm, I'm ready to start the next phase of my life where I can I can really start helping people. Could you talk more about that and even more just how you got involved with all that you have worked on and with Net Impact in particular? My first class I ever took in college was a sociology class and I before that I never really liked school but for some reason I was just so fascinated with sociology and my teacher encouraged some of the students to go to her club meeting which was for the students for social justice and I ended up going and one of the students was transgender and he suggested that College of Marin get gender neutral bathrooms installed mm -hmm. on campus. So 
so me being young, I was really shy. I, my going to my first class, I couldn't really talk to people, and I wanted to break that cycle. So I raised my hand, and I'm like, okay, I'll help out with the project. And it took about three years, but we we got the bathrooms installed on campus, and I think that really gave me the confidence that I was looking for. Every, everybody's experiences lead them to where they are at that moment, and it's important to use those experiences to continue your life. If you go to netimpact.org, you can learn about opportunities um, to get involved with advocacy, advocacy and sustainability. So we are here with uh, Nathan Bowman, Eric Dowds, Mark Jackson, uh, all three people who I have officially interviewed for 100 Degrees of Impact. So my background is actually in physics. For about 15 years I, I did academic research in something called string theory, which is a quantum theory of gravity. Like how does science overlap with impacts? The great thing about science and technology is that it, it determines what you can do, what tools you have at your disposal. And so, so I think there's a lot of overlap in that sense. With quantum computers, the hope is that we could design personalized medicine for people because often medicine is effective for one person, but it's, it's ineffective or even harmful for someone else. Mm -hmm. And so we could design medicines for people to treat some condition and minimize the side effects. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, and another hope is that we could design better materials so that they would be more energy efficient or less polluting. Technology is it, it's both good and bad, so as I mentioned, it, it gives you tools, yeah. but it's up to you to decide which tools you use. But often our ability to create technology is, is faster than our ability to use it responsibly. How do you think we could get more people in the room? And in a sense, we are talking about equity more on the boat ride over, like how we could get more people into these conversations, like whether that's based on gender or race. We're at three, four men, three white men here, and I feel like it's how do we diversify the conversation and dialogue overall? Right. Well, to start out, when thinking about intersectionality when it comes to yeah. tech in Silicon Valley, I mean, it's, it's really white, I suppose you could say. So making sure that there's more people of color or women or gender non-conforming people in, in that industry is, is really important to not only create better technology, but to make a more diverse world. Fantastic, I loved it. Yeah, I loved it too. Alright, so we are now in more of a medical setting. Uh, so we're surrounded by hospitals here. I'm going to DREV, and why I personally find this really fascinating is because living with type 1 diabetes, my life is directly impacted by design that comes out of the scientific world, out of the medical world, uh, in terms of hardware, but then also the software, in terms of how users um, implement that in their daily lives. And so with San Francisco Design Week as the backdrop of 20s and Change, I think really what the conversation about is about is this intersection of people who use, use this and need it, people like myself with diabetes, but in other things, um, and those researchers, those innovators, and bringing those together in a closer way. So when final products are developed or things are uh, developed for today or in five years, that they make sure they include kind of everyone's story. Um, so there's a lot more like win-win situations. I 
work at DRIVE as an electromechanical engineering intern. So if you want, let's just follow me and see what DRIVE is about. This is the first product uh, by DRIVE. It's a brilliance. It's a UV light to uh, treat jaundice for uh, premature babies. And it's what's had the most impact at DRIVE. Uh, so Tristan, I'm from Montreal, Quebec. and. Uh, I'm here at DREV as an Autodesk electromechanical engineering intern. And um, so, what DREV does is it's a nonprofit, a small nonprofit in San Francisco, and we're doing sort of accessible, easy to use, and low cost medical devices for developing countries. I'd love to hear more about you and your story. <laughs> okay, so my dad's an engineer, so I think that's like a major contributor to how I. I'm sort of more technical. I used to watch how it's made with my, my dad. And so then at one point I heard about Arduinos, which yeah. is like this, you probably heard of it. It's like this microcontroller sort of uh, open source platform. And then you start you know, looking at projects on YouTube and then you see that there are channels that are just dedicated to those things and you start to follow them. And I'd say it's mostly uh, also looking at forums yeah. when you sort of have a, a problem um, seeing how you can uh, how other people solve the problem and you know building that you sort of uh, build your experience at least for me I can speak for others but yeah. like what's imp like impressive is how much being one person you can have an impact on you know 600,000 babies for me like the main focus of the company right now is working on a smart CPAP device uh, CPAP stands for continuous positive air pressure and so basically that is a device that can control a flow of air very precisely, uh, temperature, humidity, pressure, <laughs> flow. Yeah. And uh, it's used to uh, deliver air to babies, usually premature babies that have uh, respiratory sort of situation problems. This is insane that like, through design you can make that much of an impact on human lives and like the thing that that occurs to me is that I think when people think of technology and when they think of like all of these big tech companies and others and you don't necessarily think about like that you know 596 amputees were fit with a device that was designed here and that's actually changing lives. What? Freaking awesome. Yeah? Yeah! Like not even 20 yet, not even out of college yet. Working at an organization that is actually impacting millions of people's lives, not only in their own country or own city, but around the world. I think it's the perfect way to end the day because we've been doing a lot today. Monday has been exhausting, but it's also been so energizing. And like just talking with Tristan is giving me the hope for the future. And the cool thing is he can be part of the next 20s and change when he's actually in his 20s. Sure. So. Go anywhere, do anything. And keep impacting. One thing that is crazy about 180 degrees of impact is that when I'm interviewing people, there's always this positive vibe and this positive warm feeling after between us. Like we've known each other for years or something because we stop and like it's sitting and talking and having a deeper conversation. I think this whole week will be a bunch of examples of that. Let's go this way. Thanks for 
tracking me down. You really had to go for it. He like so submitted a fake request to be a trainer for wrestling. Oh no, no. It was no. Like an MCW. No, it was like through them. I but was, it was like... through them. Like you had to submit a request. Like, yeah, I was like, hey, so I like wanted to do this interview that's change maker focused and they were like we don't know if she'll be interested but she'll get in touch if she's interested it was really also based <laughs> on like the fact that you went for it yeah. i was like this person really hunted me down i like that and it's also kind of the the microcosm for like what set me on my journey was now you could type in how do i be a wwe wrestler yeah. and it would be like here's the address of the performance center here's when the next tryout is here's yeah. that you know and, and because there wasn't that it was like you have to make up your own route yeah. and sometimes the roads aren't even there but so you have to make roads yeah what was going through your head that you decided to be like that bold i i really um attribute punk rock to that and it's because in punk rock music it's like the diy ethic is you know everyone can do it you can figure out how to do anything and these bands i mean there might have been 200 people there but they were my like ACDC or Metallica mm -hmm. like I didn't think like oh there's only a hundred people in this room these people are nobody I'm like yeah. this, this is my favorite band that I'm listening to right now and they figured out how to get all the way across the country yeah. In 2002 I, I broke my neck I was dropped on my head by a stunt person <sighs> and uh, it sucked but fortunately, like, I'm walking and I was able to yeah. return to the ring and it could have been um, a lot worse. But I always say that that moment I had before what I had was like, I said that, that killed my invincibility. And then when that happened, I was like, whoa, like, yeah. sometimes you get smacked in the face, <laughs> you know? It was really limited in my physical activity and I felt so useless yeah. to me and people around me. I had a hard collar on for four months. I couldn't yeah. drive. I, you know, it was just really... It, I was spinning out, you know, I just was really depressed and and, and so I just uh, I gave myself hours at the community, the animal control. Yeah. So because I was like, if I didn't have somewhere to be, I was just going to lay around all day or, you know, while my physical activity was limited, I, st I still there was stuff I could do. Mm -hmm. I just wasn't doing that because I, I yeah. was depressed. So I gave myself hours there and I would just go clean cages and and, and so it was therapeutic to me. Yeah. Uh, all, I, didn't, I remember my friends were joking, they're my friends who became my friends yeah. working at the shelter there. They're like, you, you'd have to get like waist deep into the kennel <laughs> because I could have had to like bend like uh. this because of my like hard collar. Yeah. Um, but just having, having a job and feeling useful and like helping those, those animals there made like helped me out of my depression and just giving yeah. me a schedule. And so from there, I was able to do some advocacy work and get some laws passed in the local community where I was working. It did make me think, all right, when I feel like this chapter is done, what yeah. do I want to do? And it's because it's really hard. We have no off season and even on your days off, a lot of times yeah. you're doing promotion and traveling. Yeah. It kind of forced me to pause and go, okay, great. Yeah. Keep keep um, focusing on your wrestling career, but know that there is gonna come a time after, and there is life and meaning outside of this bubble that you're living in, which is a really cool bubble, but like, yeah. you know, branch out and start thinking about that. Yeah. My character and the things I was doing in front of the camera were different than the, yeah. the way women had been uh, portrayed before. Now, actually, I just did a, a new 
t-shirt um, and That's I, the other thing yeah I, I did a, um, so 100% of the um, proceeds are going to uh, reproductive rights for for women in, in the trenches in Alabama and Georgia specifically where they're dealing obviously with insane laws right now yeah. people ask if I was in gymnastics and stuff and I, and I always say like <laughs> I'm not even that great of an athlete I just kind of have balls so I yeah. just would like throw myself and cross my fingers and hold my breath and hope for the best as opposed to you hold on so tight open up your eyes we just had an awesome interview with Amy it's, it's really cool how you have people who you don't necessarily expect to like identify as change makers making an impact and Amy's definitely doing that. I had a lot of respect for what she does but especially with 20s and change as the background. Um, to have someone that's like a mentor that can relate to I think a lot of generational stuff that we're gonna be dealing with yeah. in terms of how do you use your platform, how do you use, how do you just go out there and do things, that's what I really respected. And she gave us some awesome recommendations for Exploring Town. Yeah. At the time, I was going around and putting awareness stickers on things. Well, it looks like they removed everything. But I have definitely ran around this park with a bunch of Type 1s. We are in Oakland right now, and when I told my mom that we were in Oakland, she kind of winced because Oakland has a pretty uh, spotted history when it comes to police violence and crime and so on and so forth. Uh, so it should be really interesting to talk with the Black Female Project. We can run away. Yeah, we can run away. This is a really special round table, which I always love a good round table for 100 pieces of that. Definitely the person to start with uh, would be Precious, who is a former 182 from the past. And we ended up a almost exactly a year ago. Well, Matt, I mean, thank you to everybody for being here. Big thanks to Kingston 11 for hosting us. And um, my name is Precious Dowd, and I work with Black Female Project. Especially with the Black women. We're the most reliable, dependable, democratic constituency. We elect people, and yet people feel most comfortable using us as a leader in the day and as a leader. We love the mic, it's so good to be the person in the elected office. Much more obvious and in your face now. I think it's a new social media and internet. Like it's not. It used to be more anecdotal, where we'd be like, "After you know, you go." For me, it's much older. Like I'd go with my grandmother and then be like, "You know what they did to Johnny?" Or you know what happened to them in California? They thought they were going to get a better job, and then it was just like you knew about your own family. And now it's like, wait, hey, this is everybody. Like this is like really we've talked about it, like in our, our families and our communities. There's like the system works against us. Like like when you see everybody posting the same thing and the same experience, it's like, oh, the system is working against us. And, and I think it's just more and more blatant and harder to escape. Yeah, the racial but also like getting tired, like 
they have shaped around mm-hmm. right and wrong, good and bad, police encounters. And that's just been disrupted and exploded by capturing it on social media now. It's like, well, what is true that I'm being taught? One thing is around um, walking into the room and not having to care, not having the responsibility to care about what anyone else is saying, but only what one person is holding. That is a luxury, a beautiful luxury. Mm-hmm. I can choose to be that way, but I wouldn't be as effective. And I wouldn't be a great... Um, convener of conversation if that were the case and so there's a lot people are missing and when I first started doing my own research I thought you know what I can't talk to anybody who doesn't know any history before 1400 because they only see me through this lens we can't go there they don't know anything about the world and that limits their ability to see me clearly and so we can't even be in conversation so um, I think historical context, to your point, is critical because yeah. everything makes sense. Yeah. But when I walk in, like it just happened yesterday, and nothing, I'm oblivious to what happened before I got here, ignorance is pervasive. It actually is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And so I would say that people have a responsibility to be whole, and that means we have to actually understand who's at the table first by knowing ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so that keeps resonating for me. What I need people to do is stop asking black women to do so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I mean quite literally. So we hear the stories, mm-hmm. right? If yeah. any of you left your jobs today, it would take three people to fill your jobs. Yeah. We know that. Yeah. That's that's not okay. No, it's not. So I need people to stop coming to black women for solutions. <laughs> Figure yeah. the shit out. a group of black women but I feel like it was definitely a group of people who have different experiences um, a different level of perspectives um, and who just walk through life differently I think that's um, very important to be, be able to understand that we are also just we're individuals yeah. we're not just black people and you're not just a black woman but that there's a lot more to it. I am so different from my siblings, so yeah. different from my parents. Yeah. And and I was raised in the same house as my siblings. We, you know, like went to the same schools as my yeah. siblings. Did every the same thing that my siblings did. We all did the same things, but I'm still so different. And my my path within life just looks completely different from them well, you know yeah. and but we look ex- like we literally yeah. look the same <laughs> for us identity is not just like gender and race and sexual orientation and like all of that but it's but it's like i'm like if you're an artist you're a storyteller you're a mother you're a health practitioner like whatever the case might be you know could be like the epilogue of the black female project yes an intimate conversation is really how i'd bill it we didn't record anything we weren't quite sure what to expect but i think it was a very powerful conversation because it kicked off basically just saying what's your update and then it just manifested we we talked with the black female projects and a lot of what we talked about in the recording was about the black woman's experience but in this group we talked about entrepreneurship we talked about pride 
and identity and I think it's really interesting to see what elements of identity people latch onto and feel comfortable, most comfortable with. Um, and it's making me think too just a lot about like my identity. Yeah, there's a lot to think about. There's always a lot to think about, but keep thinking and keep impacting. Go anyway, do anything. Montgomery stop at BART. Today we're going to meet with people from Code 2040 and it should be interesting because it's a racial justice organization working to create tech, tech equity, equity in tech and that's following on our conversation with Black Female Project so it should be really interesting to see how we can continue the conversation, focus on solutions and see how they, in particular a team member by the name of Naomi, are making an impact. Nice, got mug. That's like good morning, America. <laughs> Did it have like the code 24? It does actually. So here we are at Code 2040, um, and our work is all around representation for Black and Latinx folks in the tech industry. Um, and increasing that representation proportionately and having folks at all levels in tech so that we can see um, more equity distribution throughout the entire innovation economy. One of the themes of 20s and Change that we've been talking about a lot with different folks as we go place to place here in the Bay Area is identity. Mm. And so just as we get started, I think it'd be good if you really identify yourself. So I identify as a black woman. Mm and I am Nigerian, um, identify with she or her, hers pronouns. Mm -hmm. And I think my identity definitely helps me to center and anchor the type of work that I do. Mm -hmm. Something that's also really important is thinking about how that maps onto other people's experiences and what that means for taking different viewpoints like into, um, I guess like into like your thought processing because I think a lot of times people think when you're centering a particular group in a lens, it means you're excluding others. Um, but that actually is not true because there's a whole holistic aspect to that. So it's like there's still like the piece of what is intersectionality? Like how do we bring everybody into this, you know, um, conversation? And it's like without perspective, it's you don't really have anything. Because when we talk about impact and we talk about change, it's all about understanding the world around you, and you cannot do that with only one perspective. Right. That is impossible. Mm -hmm. Like storytelling and relations and relationships is data. Mm -hmm. And that data and research doesn't have to be documented in the way that we're used to seeing it, um, which is actually like a very, like a, it's a, I think it's a very like normalized um, way and it's a way that's very much steeped in like white supremacy to think mm -hmm. that for research to be valid it has to be sterile mm -hmm. and it has to be perfect and it has to be written down and documented and it has to be dense and no one can understand it unless you're an academic right. <laughs> which is just ridiculous yeah. Yeah. and I think there's just a lot of beauty in realizing how being in community is research and is data and is understanding 
you can take feelings and emotions and sentiments that are being expressed to you in relational ways and translate that into something meaningful. Whenever you're confronting a system that's been normed for hundreds of years mm -hmm. and accepted, it's like that comes with a lot of risk, especially if you're doing that in the workspace where there, there's like a lot you could lose, right? Mm -hmm. um, and one way we try to kind of like balance that is reminding folks that in doing this work, it's all about agency. So at whatever level you're at, whatever work that you're doing, it's all about taking the agency to do that in a way that feels right for you. All you have to really do is identify that there's a problem. Yeah. And then it's like, hmm, there's a problem here. I'm not sure what to do. Let me think about this a little bit. Let me ask this person what they think about it. Mm -hmm. I know this person has this resource. Yeah. Oh, this person does this. Let's come together and talk about how we can all do something together to address this. Yeah. Let's do this thing. Yeah. There you go, like that's the leader. So yeah. it's like getting past the idea that you have to have all the answers, because you don't. Yeah. So how do you identify a problem and then seek to find a solution for that problem, but then also seek to remedy the structure that, it wor that it's working within, right? Yeah. Like who are some of those people who've been the active participants for the lead in your life that you really admire? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> yeah. Mimi used to be my manager, um, and it's my coworker. And she, I feel like she was really the person that pushed me to speak truth to power, even when it didn't feel comfortable. I feel like I always had those thoughts and feelings, but sometimes to actually voice them and to say them with confidence in a space where they might not be accepted is very difficult. And she coached me around doing that and around like leading with my intuition. Um, which was really, really impactful for me because I think that tied a lot into like my personal growth as a person because I think like to do this work, it's like you can only meet others as far as you meet yourself, which is a huge thing that I've learned from her. Oh, here we go again, yeah. Oh, here we go again. So we just finished up at Code 2040. Now we're headed to meet up with Isabel and the Cosmos here. It's our friend Cassandra's organization. It's going to be awesome to meet them. We're at um, Youth Art Exchange, which is a um, center in San Francisco. Um, and they host a lot of art events um, for the community. And so we're going to be hosting actually a casual, intimate roundtable discussion with two creative professionals and learn more about their careers um, and their experiences as Asian women creators. And I'm Isabel Bagsik, and I am a graphic designer myself. Um, I am also from the Bay Area, and I currently work at an art and design magazine, but I'm actually moving to a new job um, as a designer to a digital content studio in San Francisco. Oh, so, yeah, so thank you. Um, I'm also the creator of Brown Papaya, and that is a magazine project, or it started off as a magazine project. Um, focused on dismantling toxic beauty expectations for Filipino women, Filipinx women. That came out of frustration personally and from what I've observed within my own culture. Um, toxic beauty expectations imposed upon Filipina, Filipinx women. Um, and I grew up hearing it, hearing it on me, hearing it on my sister, um, seeing it in the media. 
in American media or even the Philippines media. Um, for instance, Philippines media, you only see one type of woman um, and they're lighter skin, long black hair that's straight, tall, Eurocentric looking. In Bloom Retreat, which was the extension of the Brown Papaya magazine, um, some of them mentioned that they didn't grow up feeling strongly connected with their Filipinx culture. Um, they didn't feel Filipino, Filipinx enough. They felt kind of weird and um, unsure and scared of entering the retreat because they didn't feel like you know they could identify very strongly. And then quite a number of them also um, had really negative experiences being among Filipinx women. Um, and so it was really refreshing and beautiful for them to have such a strong and genuine connection with each other throughout the weekend and they've only met or you know like hung out and met each other for um, two days not even a full two days or something like that mm -hmm. so those are some of those frustrations specifically for Filipinx culture or Filipinx women. For you what has that journey been like to come to embrace your identity? So I was really um, privileged enough to have access to university life and to be involved with the Filipinx community there. I was student leader for three years. I was involved my first year, so I was in it for four years, um, which really helped me create a foundation in terms of community organizing and being um, familiar with having conversations mm -hmm. relating to cultural identity, to what it mean, what does it mean to be Filipinx versus Filipinx American and surrounding mm -hmm. those two different identities. Uh -huh. um, all these intersecting identities of being a woman um, with um, being in the Filipinx culture, with being a student, all these different things. So because of that experience in college, um, at UC Davis specifically, um, I was able to learn more about cultural identity there, about history, about how history affects um, the way we view ourselves, for instance, colorism. Um, was something that I was able to dive deeper into um, for specifically Filipinx uh, women like due to colonization the different cultures or the different groups that colonized the Philippines a lot of their beauty expectations were passed down um, and it's still something that um, affects us today. Because of the nature of my job all my peers are really old white men and when I go comments to these people assume that I'm like their assistant, which is really offensive. Mm -hmm. um, but and I think I got lucky because I work for a smaller company. That's why I'm able to do like more managerial job, and that's why I'm in that situation where I'm working with these guys. Being Asian and having this, the uh, both the perspective of um, having stayed in Asia and also here, that's also part of my superpower in a sense because I can create fusion stuff really well, but I cannot create traditional Asian stuff, like French um, food really well. And I feel like it's good to be self-aware. That's actually part of my identity and part of what I bring to the world is that fusion, that combination of Yeah, we are run rundown. Yeah, yeah I think like that's what it's deep, called. Deep, yeah. think, how do you think the event went? The cosmos. I think it seemed really uh, successful. Everyone had questions um, during the Q and A, and we're really excited to get to know the speakers right after. I wish there was more time. It looked like they wanted more time. Yeah. To keep them out. And that's always. That's how you know it's okay. a good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You keep everyone wanting to come back, like come back for more. <laughs> I really like the balance of identities, like, um, you know, being like 
an Indian woman in tech, yeah. and that's surprising people. So I appreciate their, their stories. Conversations that we have over the next few days. I think it will go to show the other side when people are out and proud and feel comfortable and not in any way harmed, but really surrounding themselves with people who will ensure that they are uplifted. is kicking off Thursday. It should be really interesting because all week we've started to dive deeper and deeper and deeper into identity. And I think now is the point where we start to kind of transition into what does that look like in these settings like the community foundations, like the Ebays of the world? Because we as people who carry one or more identities that are often not uh, in the norm or that are often othered have to figure out how we navigate these spaces. She gotta do it with a purpose and Madonna by the mirror, man, I heard that she a virgin. Sheesh! And I've been in the gym all week. You know Baby boss, that's how I'ma drop the gyms y'all need. I've been working on his body for the beach all winter. <laughs> We're here at the airport, the San Francisco airport, SFO. Uh, kind of accidentally, we took the BART train and thought it was going all the way to Millbrae where we'd hop on a train from Millbrae to Palo Alto but that was not the case. We hit the end of the line, somehow ended up at the train station, I think because we were on the yellow line instead of the red line. Either way, we're recovering, we kind of like acted fast. Yes, I know my worth. Go hard, put in the work. Cause I come first and I ain't even need your help. Put the work in. Palo Alto, actually just outside of some sort of Amazon headquarters or office, but we are going to be headed over to Stanford because we are going to have a conversation with Chris and Renee. To the real sh to have to rap as you know, man, you gonna need exorcisms. I'm attacking a soul. Whoa! Thanks for for joining us here, Chris. Could you introduce yourself for sure. those who have who, for whatever reason, I don't know what they were thinking, but missed your <laughs> interview for 100 Days Impact. Well, yeah. I mean, so uh, I've, I've worked in, in CSR for roughly 10 years. Uh, I've led um, CSR departments at uh, three companies, uh, SC Johnson, HP, and eBay. And um, it's, a, it's an amazing space. It's a space that's really changed in that decade. I think it's become uh, much more outward looking. I've lived here for about three years now. And before I was in LA, I kind of had a very wandering career path. It's a very long story of my upbringing, but uh, right now I work as a corporate social responsibility manager at the Silicon Valley Community Foundation. I never went to school, so I was technically homeschooled. Because mm -hmm. we were very conservative, so mm -hmm. no TV, no radio, wow. no movies. <laughs> so I was taught that girls were not supposed to go to college, that you were just supposed to get married, you were supposed to stay home. <laughs> have babies and then homeschool them. It was like the 1950s, basically, all over again. I had just read a book um, called Kisses from Katie or Kisses by Katie. This is about this girl in Nashville where we were living at the time 
who goes to Uganda and starts this nonprofit school for a bunch of kids. And I was fascinated. I just did a Google search for orphanage, Uganda, but flights were cheaper to Kenya. So I ended up finding this school, this like NGO school in Kenya. I was just emailed them and I said, hey, can I come volunteer with you? They said, sure. And so I got a flight to Kenya. <laughs> so anyway, I came back to the US. I ended up working with that NGO for close to two years. On the side, I was like, okay, I'm definitely gonna go have a career. So I went back to school, got my, and was working on my MBA. I was working full time. And then I was working with the school to, you know, be able to provide more for the students, which is a lot of fun. And that's when I realized like, oh, this is what I wanna do. Mm -hmm. Like I really enjoyed this, but I was also in business school. So how can you combine business with nonprofits? Mm -hmm and I didn't know about corporate social responsibility. Yeah. So I just uh, created a website and decided to start writing about it. It let me identify by writing about it like what I was really interested in. And then it also provided plenty of networking opportunities. I got to learn from the experts. So I was like, yeah. what companies do I really admire? Oh, Ben & Jerry's. Okay, I'll see if I can interview the CEO of Ben & Jerry's. I'm actually really interested in hearing more about what your vision is for how our world and maybe more specifically, like Silicon Valley could be better when it comes to those those issues that you address. As you know, we have tech companies that are largely run by um, a very small like yeah. segment of society. It's not very diverse, and so yeah. the products they create tend to not be diverse. It's a challenge because you've got this whole pipeline from third grade girls. There are studies that show that around third grade. Before that, girls and boys are equally interested in like math and science. And then something happens around there where that age where girls are taught like science and math and tech, that's right. for boys and it's not for girls. <laughs> and, and so it's like we need the curriculum to change. The other thing is <clears throat> work needs to be done for the leaders of these companies to mm -hmm. recognize the value of diversity. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think they, they're reporting, yeah. they're putting in place chief diversity officers and they're trying to be more transparent but I, I haven't seen a company come out and actually say yeah. that being diverse is a source of strength yeah. which I, I think it is diverse mm -hmm. in terms of gender in terms of ethnic background I mean that's that international I mm -hmm. mean if, if you're a global company mm -hmm. having people in your company in positions of, of authority who represent the global constituency is going to prevent your company from making mistakes, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, thinking about like Facebook and some of the things that have happened with social media, you know, to, to harm uh, at risk populations in different countries. I mean, mm -hmm. that wouldn't be quite so prevalent if they had a, yeah. a clearer view of what's going on in those countries. Mm -hmm. So I think diversity really is a source of strength and that and we need to do more to, um, to advocate that. Sciences getting ready to meet with 500 queer scientists, specifically with Lauren and Sean, their co-founders, and it's going to be exciting to dive in. California Academy, which I haven't been to before, is a place that I've heard so much about, and in particular, they are an Autodesk Foundation grantee, which links them with DREV, and it all comes full circle. So it should be really interesting just to dive in the conversation with them 
uh, around identity because there is a lot there. I'm like nervous and excited and uh, this is gonna be a cool, cool talk. <laughs> so yeah. So I'm Dr. Lauren Esposito. Yes. I'm an arachnologist, which means I study spiders and scorpions. Um, I study the evolutionary processes that, that have occurred that led to what we see on Earth today or the species that share the Earth with us. Uh, and one of the things I'm really interested in is trying to understand how past processes have led to present day diversity so that we can use our knowledge to ensure that future diversity occurs. I also, along with this kid over here, uh, founded a visibility campaign for LGBTQ plus people and working in, in science, really in STEM, uh, in STEM supporting careers or STEM affiliated careers. And what it's about is just like a celebration of what people contribute from the LGBT community to the STEM fields. And, and we both kind of felt like that's an aspect of your identity that's often kept hidden. Yeah. And we launched this campaign to allow people to live their full selves with both their LGBT identity and their identity as yeah. a scientist. Yeah, I work, um, I have a few different hats here uh, at the museum, along with the Fine Recruiter Scientists, uh, helped founded, founded that last year. Um, but I work in the botany department as a scientific illustrator. There's, there's a long-standing concept that you should only bring your science to work. And I think that that works really great if, you're, if you belong to the historic majority in science. Right. Uh, but if you don't belong to the historic majority, if you aren't in a position where you are financially stable, your spouse can stay at home taking care of your children, you can just come to work and do work every single day, then it makes it really hard not to bring your personal life to work. And so I think that visibility campaigns like 500 Queer Scientists really allow people to understand that they have a place in science and that it is okay to bring that identity yeah. with you to work. Um, and that makes for, for I think, healthier, like, mental state yeah. as a worker, like to be able to come to work and know that you can bring your whole self yeah. when you show up for the job and that you're valued because of it. Using um, Instagram to talk about what it's like to be a scientist, what it's like to be an artist, what it's like to be a queer person in the sciences, but also being very vulnerable with the struggles that go with each. Whether it's as an artist, people like they expect you to work for free. As a mm -hmm. scientist, they don't expect you to be emotional. As a queer person, they kind of, well, it depends on where that judgment may come from, whether it's inside the community or outside the community, what people might expect from you. And so it's been very, it's, it is a privilege to be able to have that voice on social media and tell people like that um, imposter syndrome is a very real thing, like all the time. Like I, I struggle with it too. And so to be out and open about these struggles and what it's like to be an artist scientist person and sharing that with the world and let knowing the people that it's you're not alone and so to have other aspects of your life have other people identify with that is absolutely amazing and it's like yeah. it shows like the true power of social media i work with a ton of people who are super like progressive and all but like to come to the table as a b in the lgbtq community as the bisexual person it's like that's not always it's tough because you might be in an environment, and I think this is, it's coming out of my mouth, so it feels bad to say that this is important to say, but just to say you could be in the most accepting environment, and yet there's still, like I was reading the statistics, one of the statistics earlier around like 
70% of people who are out in the workplace are afraid of facing like discrimination or some sort of retribution like you were talking about, Lauren. Mm -hmm. And so I just think it's important for people who aren't even scientists. I think it's powerful that you're able to be an example that reaches other communities that aren't the science community. From the time that I started my P like my graduate studies up until the time I got a job here, like a lot happened in this country that I think started shifting attitudes quite a bit. Like when I started graduate school, like gay marriage was still illegal in all 50 states. Um, and by the time I was doing my first postdoc, like by the time I'd finished my postdoc, like gay marriage was legal, right? Like in all 50 states. Yeah. So that was like, I think it was like a really important period in the country that, so that I don't know that it was necessarily like as a community working in science, working in STEM, anything happened, but like socially as a country, we became more progressive with LGBTQ issues and that allowed people to be more comfortable being out and open at work. Um, I think that that, I suspect that that probably played a really big role in it. So I think that, that overall as a community, like things have started to shift in the right direction, but like really need a lot of like heavy pushing from the community to really push things forward into a place of real acceptance. Queer science story because I think visibility is important. I grew up in the South too, I think that's a really important thing. So being gay in science is not quite as challenging as being gay in the South. <laughs> Having said that, um, part of the reason I ended up in San Francisco was because of some of the experiences that I had interviewing for faculty positions. This was 22 years ago. I ended up in San Francisco State because uh, I fell in love with it the minute I stepped on the campus. There was so much diversity of students in terms of people of color and different cultures and um, LGBTQIA and all that sort of thing. And um, so it definitely brought me to San Francisco State. I felt more at home there than I did anywhere else I've ever been. Now we're in Daly City. We're on our way to Clara Foods, uh, which is in South San Francisco. A little bit of a hike away, but we're gonna get there. We're gonna meet Arturo Elizondo, and it's gonna be awesome to talk with him because I actually met him about seven or eight years ago while we were both interning at different positions in Washington, D.C. So it's actually the first time we're seeing each other since then. It should be interesting to catch up, see what he's working on because now he's the CEO and co-founder of Clara Foods. So let's go. Arturo, could you introduce yourself and tell us where we are and who you are? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hi everyone. I am Arturo, founder and CEO of Clara Foods. And we are here in our headquarters in South San Francisco, the biotech capital of the world. We make real animal protein without using animals to do so. 
This city is really special because it is in the heart of Silicon Valley and sort of bridging San Francisco with the rest of the peninsula. And in particular, it's where biotech was birthed. So Genentech was the first ever real biotech company that proved that actually uh, you can make animal protein without using animals 40 years ago. They birthed biotechnology for the world, and it was to make insulin protein. Yeah. Because insulin, most people don't know, but insulin used to come from pigs prior to Genentech. Mm -hmm. In order to, to get diabetics to, get, to take insulin, you had to, you had to kill a pig, extract the insulin protein from their pancreas, purify that, and then inject that into people. And that's how every diabetic got their insulin protein from. And then Genentech discovered that my, my microorganisms can also produce protein. And so what they did is that they designed um, microbes to be able to produce the same exact protein that the, that the pig makes. And so instead of using over 50,000 pigs to make one kilo of insulin, you could use a, fer a fermenter hmm. and, and, gr and grow bacteria and, and therefore produce that protein. And so now every diabetic, around 98 to 99% of insulin produced in the world today is made using fermentation instead of animals. And now it's a lot safer, you know, it's kosher, halal, you know, vegan. Right. Most people don't know about that story, but it's really cool to see how, you know, companies like Genentech um, started off this sector and now how we're using very similar technologies and approaches to help transform our food system. Hmm. I was born in Laredo, Texas. Hmm right on the border with Mexico. Um, I grew up in a community that was very homogenous, very Mexican-American, very Catholic, very um, socially conservative, uh, but also very warm and safe. And I carry that with me. I grew up eating meat every single day for every single meal, barbecues every, you know, every Sunday. And food has been such a huge part of my life and a huge part of my culture, as it is with, with, with most people, right? Is that food is something that you can identify with so much and that brings people together. And I, and I really love that. Also never questioned where my food came from. In high school, I saw this video on YouTube um, of a factory farm that someone had posted on Facebook. And it blew my mind. It was like the first time that I was confronted with the choices that I was making mm -hmm. and I couldn't believe that that's where my food was coming from. That sort of spurred the desire to learn more about the food system in a much deeper way. You know, I was very privileged, very lucky to be born in the U.S., to have access to opportunities, to have access to a really great education. And I knew that, you know, had I been born a few miles south of the border, my, my life would have been very different. Right. And I grew up, you know, cro you know, crossing the border on a regular basis and, and seeing what that was like. And it, it instilled in me sort of a deep desire to, to use this life in a way that was going to make the world a little better than I found it. We are going to have to change our food system dramatically because there is not, there is not enough land or water on the planet to satiate this demand. Mm -hmm. And so the markets will have to adjust accordingly. And, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of different ways that you can bring about change. For me, the, um, using business as a force for good felt just so, um, so true to who I was. Because, you know, I grew up in Texas and whenever anyone mentioned vegan food, it was yeah. like, it was like, it was disappointment. <laughs> right. You know, if you were choosing some, to eat something vegan, it wasn't going to be as delicious and it was going to be super expensive. I didn't want to accept that fact. Yeah. And, I wanted to, and I wanted to see if technology could really help us bridge that gap and, and, and think about how can you have the most delicious option and the most convenient option actually be the most... Um, 
the, the best one for you and the best for the planet. blocks away from beyond type one in San Carlos and it's gonna be interesting because Eric it's an organization you know so well it's an organization I've witnessed from afar and it's gonna be exciting to finally be literally at the table with some of the people making the biggest impact in the world of diabetes not just with type ones but type twos and so many others so Eric what are your thoughts as we just go in dive in we're about a hundred feet away How's it feel? It feels good. I'm excited to uh, have a conversation that's close to my heart and also continue uh, conversations around identity, especially with invisible identities. Uh, and just see where it goes. Yeah, and we're going to talk about probably how to make the invisible more visible. <laughs> Um, I work at Beyond Type 1. I've been working in communication since I started. I started as a social media manager three years ago. I live with type 1 diabetes and have for almost 18 years. My dad is type 1 and has been for 50 years and my mom's dad is type 1. I had this like built-in community in my family growing up. A lot of people feel when they feel really isolated, like I think I kind of dodged the isolation bullet, which yeah. is kind of amazing and there's a little bit of like a superpower for having grown up with type 1 was never feeling super isolated and kind of always having someone to talk to mm. and just having somebody when you're like, "Hey, my blood sugar is really high and I feel terrible and I'm also really frustrated because I don't know what I did and like this isn't my fault and yeah. having someone who like actually understands that kind of in your house is like huge I don't know I think we went to support groups and like didn't really feel like it spoke to us kind of did our own thing in our own little diabetes bubble yeah. of like how diabetes works in our family because it mm -hmm. happened to be really common but then I went to school and moved out and was living on my own and also was like, you know, getting on social media, realizing like I'm living for the first time without someone else in my house who has type one. Mm -hmm. um, and that's less fun. But it was a little taste of like, oh, that's what it feels like. And I don't really like it. Yeah. And then I'm studying health communication. And then the diabetes online community was like the obvious place uh, yeah. that sort of came out of that when I was looking around online. <laughs> Not every type one meetup is right for you and you have to find your community within the people who live with type one But everybody with type one understands something about other people with type one that everyone else doesn't and that's cool And a like basis for a real relationship. Why do you think that community is so strong other than there just being a need for that kind of connection? I mean, I think to like just bring it back to where you started yeah. the question is <laughs> yeah. like I think it's because it like is also an identity like it's related mm. to your identity although yeah. people would take various right. levels of yeah. like yes. interest in that description which yeah. is fine and yeah. if people don't want to identify with it yeah that's okay too but i think that there's a lot of people who recognize that if you do there's a lot of power in that mm -hmm. that like seeing other people kind of embrace it and talk about it openly actually has a lot of positive benefits outside of just like friends I remember living with type 1 for five years and almost only having the persona of like, I don't have this because it's like, 
you can mm. overcome this, you can do yeah. anything, you can go out there and it's almost like diabetes is like suppressed a little bit. Yeah. <clears throat> and now, and there's a lot of lessons like learning me like, I actually do have a disease that yeah. needs to get managed and has repercussions. Yeah. And so now like with advocacy, I think it's a lot about like, how can we share and highlight stories or highlight lessons? So like what took me 10 years can take someone like 30 seconds or right, a, right. a year. And I think like beyond type one, there's a lot of that work. Yeah. We are basically trying to put a stake in the ground and say, we think that access to high quality modern insulin and diabetes supplies is like a basic human right in the United States. Mm. People don't know where to start. It's so complicated here. Yeah. And they don't know like where even the first touch point is to start to understand not only like your own insurance plan, but like what is the landscape of yeah. healthcare payers in America yeah. look like? And yeah. we're trying to be someone who can help with the kind of education and like connect the dots for people yeah i think that there is an issue in the type 1 diabetes instagram but online community more broadly of one type of experience being talked about more than others in mm -hmm. terms of like race and income specifically mm -hmm. like yeah. i think that there's a lot of like upper and middle class white people talking about type 1 diabetes online right and I, we would really like to see that change i think we have a responsibility to like find the people who break out of those molds a little bit elevate their voices and hopefully like use that as a starting point i can see lots of people who look like me yeah. mm. talking about their type 1 diabetes online and i can see that it's like safe for me to join yeah. the conversation yeah but i don't know that that's true for everyone yeah. so i'd really like to like be doing some of the work to start changing that yeah. by just elevating the people who are already out there who like might look different or have a different story to tell i just love that it's really like a youth driven mm -hmm. movement mm -hmm. not just in terms of like beyond type one and mm -hmm. its creation but also all the people that i'm seeing speak up mm -hmm. and young people i feel are so much more like aware of these issues mm -hmm. than uh, the previous generation and the generation before that and so on and so forth yeah. we know where we need to go mm -hmm. like that's already paving the path to progress and I, I think that's like the first place to start at least yeah. like having the dialogue and mm -hmm. then kind of seeing what you could do to go there because progress doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. Um. I just wanted to make this live video today uh, to talk a little bit about grief, loss, growth, and also self-compassion. Just by sharing my story, for those who haven't heard it, my dad passed away March 8th, 2017, after a very short battle with a rare form of leukemia. And I was 24 at the time, I'm 27 now. And so it's been over two years, this was my third Father's Day, without him. And you know, what I've learned in the process has been really interesting because a lot of it has been through the Option B group and also through others in the grief community, including another organization, The Dinner Party, and through all those experiences connecting with others, but also connecting with myself, I feel like there have been just those experiences that, sure, are there are some that are positive, but also the negative ones, and I think just reflecting on that growth and the positivity, I feel like one beautiful thing in my life since losing my dad, Moses, has been like just developing more of an appreciation for 
the time I have and sure there's like some as I'm sure many of you could relate to some paranoia around that and you don't want to experience more loss and have that pain and you want to live life to the fullest while you can because we all know it's not guaranteed I think the reason I'm making this video is to share that there are positives there are negatives and if there's one piece of advice I could give to anyone who's watching or anyone who is new and just joining the group, it is just to practice self-compassion and to be kind to yourself. Like, grief is a roller coaster experience and I experienced that with losing my dad. But I know so many others who've had that same roller coaster where it's like one day you're up here and the next you're here and I think while it's unpredictable and all over the place and doesn't have a specific process and specific steps, something you can do is manage how you react as best as possible. Manage how you react to the ups and downs. And so I'd say to practice self-compassion, take time when you can, connect with people who uplift you and make you feel better. So that's all I wanted to say. I hope that that was a message that somebody needed. Square. It's called Union Square. <laughs> Union Square on a beautiful Saturday. It happens to be Pride this weekend, so I feel like there's lots of people out and about. We have uh, kind of all the companies with their various flags out here, which is uh, actually something really cool that you see in the Bay Area. Just uh, that support. Yeah. Community. Awesome. And we, of course, have a um, a wonderful special guest <clears throat> today, an interviewee with us. Uh, Molly Sanchez. Molly, how Hi. is it going today? It's going great. Thanks for coming out to my neighborhood. I no appreciate problem. It. Like, how does like identity or your identity like a motivator affect the work that you do? So much of comedy is finding like the story that only you know how to tell. Mm -hmm. And that's why like when things feel hack, it's because they're so generic to anybody. I mean, that's why like truly the most like the crappiest jokes are the ones like mother-in-laws, they <laughs> suck. <laughs> Women be shopping. It's like, cause that could be anybody. And it's also kind of bygone ideas. Yeah. So, so much of my comedic journey is figuring out like, what is my perspective? And so it's like, okay, what are things that make me me? Well, like I grew up really nerdy, very weird. And uh, how do I talk about that? I grew up uh, mixed race. How do I talk about that? I'm still not 100% sure how to do that. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm a woman. So those are all things that's like, that's what makes uh, Molly Sanchez joke or comedy. It has like a little bit of all of those things. And the thing that becomes that hard there and the thing that I think we see a lot of is if you are a person of color, if you are a gay person, yeah. that has to be 100% what you write about. And you have to, there's kind yeah. of sometimes like a... Um, a solemnity with that but like that has to be your shtick we have to have ways of expressing our identity that aren't like trauma related mm -hmm. and it we don't have to be pigeonholed in that way so we have to broaden what we're expecting from poc uh comedians and artists all around because it doesn't just have to be trauma based and it doesn't just have to be like bummer 
no, yeah. it can be like it's joy is part of our identity yeah. and silliness is part of our identity as much as anything else and I think yeah. white people have been allowed to have you know the joy and the pain as part of their comedy for so long like it's yeah. just time to let us be silly too to look at identity is one thing and then to look at it through a lens of comedy and joy is yeah. another thing I'm just curious like what value you see or importance you see when it comes to humor and comedy as a tool to address some of these like actually meaningful issues. It's accessible in a very different way yeah. than literature, spoken word, and yeah. all of those are perfectly valid, awesome forms. But this is kind of hacky, but I feel like so many white people had never like listened to somebody speak Ooh. in Spanglish for a yeah. long time until George Lopez, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and he is like not without his issues, mm -hmm. but like that is hugely important that he was this like mainstream comedian that was talking in Spanglish that like use the term Chicano like I had never even heard that yeah. and I am Chicano yeah. like I had no idea that was a thing until I listened to him so it's so important to give more voices more chances to do more things yeah and comedy is a really palatable way to do that I think so I guess uh, the advice to somebody who is starting out is like ask for these things yeah like if you notice you're seeing open mics with only white people and shows with only white people raise your hand and say why is this that way yeah. and talk to each other i feel like the best thing that i've done with comedy is get linked into groups of other comedians so mm -hmm. whether that's like secret groups of all you know yeah black and brown comedians yeah. or all yeah. women comedians and when we talk to each other it feels less like tokenism because mm -hmm. i do think there was this time where it's like there can only be two women comedians, right. and if one of them's not me, it sure as hell's not going to be you. Yeah. And now we can talk to each other more. So it would be asked to be included, talk to other people, and, you know, never be so rigid that you, you can't change, I guess. right in um, and like just reflect first and foremost this has been a crazy week like people have been asking us how many interviews it's been so I just counted earlier today for the first time but you are interviews number 20 and 21 so lucky number 21. Twofer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I see. Yeah. I right. see. And okay. we're getting into the 20. And the final story. hurrah. Yeah. <laughs> the final hurrah. And so this is really special um, and I I would love if you could just start up by, I don't know, Chris or Sandy by, by starting up, but if we could, if you could introduce yourselves for the 108 Degrees yeah. of 20s and Change audience. Okay, well, since I'm number 20, I'll go first. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So um, I'm not actually literally 20, I'm just number 20 for the purposes of this podcast, because clearly I think I'm a few years beyond 20. Yeah. Uh, my name is Sandy Steer, and I'm here because I'm happy to be celebrating Pride with my wife, Chris, mm -hmm. um, and celebrating also our anniversary, because oh, we nice. were... Mary, yesterday was our legal wedding anniversary. We have several, but that was our legal wedding anniversary. So this is a really exciting week for us. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and I'm Chris Perry, Sandy's wife, but um, more than that, obviously. Uh, we're the parents of four sons, three of whom are still in their 20s, one of whom is 30, 
And so we have a lot to say and we have lots of thoughts about young adults and all of their potential and all the great opportunities before them and some of the challenges too. Mm -hmm. So we're looking forward to talking to you not only with pride as the background, but yeah. um, a presidential race and a number mm -hmm. of other incredible opportunities for yeah. young people to make their mark on the future. Yeah. I was feeling very nostalgic. I moved, we parked our car just across the street from the courthouse where the trial for Proposition 8 occurred. When I came back to the room a little bit ago, I said to Sandy, I parked right across the street from the courthouse. Like we went there so many times, yeah. it was right in our memories. But just over the top of that building is San Francisco City Hall, where we were married mm -hmm. six years ago by Senator Harris, but where I interned when I was a graduate student at San Francisco State in the 80s. And I was really fortunate to intern. It was after Harvey Milk had been assassinated, of course, mm -hmm. but there were others that had been elected to replace him and then replace them. And Phyllis Lyon and Del Martin were very active lesbian um, political figures in San Francisco at that time in my life. And I looked up to them mm -hmm. as truly the pioneers around lesbian activism and lesbian politics and mm -hmm. proud to have their identity, you know, um, be a part, uh, be public. It, we're sitting here right now only yeah. a few blocks yeah. from San Francisco City Hall and the federal building and the state building where people like Kamala Harris worked, where our yeah. trial occurred, where Harvey Milk worked, where Gavin Newsom and Mayor Ed Lee and so many others, Nancy Pelosi, yeah. have all been you know, making an impact on not only our lives, but our children's lives and, and so many others around the, not only San Francisco and California, but now I think around the country. Mm -hmm. And globally, I'm sure, even I hope so. effect. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sandy, where your impact journey? Start? Well, I mean, it, it, Proposition Eight certainly mm -hmm. around my relationship with Chris, but I, I really think that our impact journeys start much before that. Mm -hmm. Like you, you come to a, uh, have an opportunity like that that you can seize, and we certainly seize that opportunity. But I've you know long since felt like every day is an impact opportunity, mm -hmm. just like on some level every day is an interview for your next job, <laughs> right? It really is, or um, just the conversations you have around the dinner table that you have with your relatives, that you have mm -hmm. with your children's friends, parents. Those things all make a difference and standing yeah. up for what you believe in and so I, I feel like it's easy to feel that you aren't connected right. to something but everyone's connected to mm -hmm. everything mm -hmm. and so in fact um, every day you have an opportunity to make a difference and what I think is so great about politics and policy and all of it is you can go through so many doors to get to make change and it can be through these individual conversations that you had mm -hmm. over the last couple of years or going all the way to the other end of the spectrum mm -hmm. and getting involved in electoral politics or donating to a campaign or go, canvassing, right? Like mm -hmm. literally trying to get people elected who are uh, gonna make, make laws while they're, they're in, in office. So I, I actually really like this idea that we can all choose our own path for change. And it isn't, there's really no right door or wrong door and not everybody is gonna go through the electoral door. Not everybody's an extrovert. No. Um, and there ta it takes all of us. And you telling your story just now about having type one is really meaningful to me. Like, so then I'll remember you and I'll be thinking about that. And as that issue comes up in on the news or right. in hearings, I'll think, oh, I met Eric and yeah. this is his condition. This is how he's dealing with it. So I just think that what you're doing is a, is a really good way to counteract the impersonal nature of social media at times um, and the extroverted <laughs> sort of but, way that things are getting managed. Yeah, know. but it's also interesting when you talk about the uh, a social media group for type one, which I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought about that, but of course yeah. that, that totally makes sense. 
a, something like a political campaign is successful when there has already been public support, when, when there's a groundswell. So you could never say a word to anybody, but if you're good at building networks and sharing information and getting the word out, that is part of the political process. Mm -hmm. It's maybe the passive part, but it is an important part. And we know with our case, one of the reasons it ended up, it was successful is because we did have the public support and that public support momentum was grown by so many different people, many of whom had nothing to do with our case yeah. whatsoever, right. but they, they, just, they shifted the political tide because the you know the uh, the executive branch they don't want to be ahead of the people yeah. the, the courts don't want to be ahead of the people so you're part of the people we're all, all part of the people right. so it's our job to move the people around right. us so that when we get a chance to be at the executive level or the, or the judicial level that we have an opportunity to be successful it's far more likely so kudos to you for uh, yeah, doing that type one work good for you and I guess on the flip side I definitely want to cover, because you also mentioned the barriers, I want to make sure to get that in. Mm -hmm. We have a lot, there's a lot facing our, our generation, including the environment and climate change and, and uh, addressing problems that were often, of course, passed down to us, but also problems we have an opportunity to address as um, probably the generation of the people, some of the people who will be taking on those challenges. Mm -hmm. But just from your perspective, especially with the context of other challenges that you've seen uh, young people in the world face, what do you see as our biggest barriers now and then even in the near future and going forward? Mm. Well, I worry about how easy it would be to dismiss or, or even reject the political system because it does seem so broken right. and that then it would be left to those who are willing to use it for the wrong reasons yeah. and I feel like we're at that tipping point moment where it hasn't felt like it has integrity mm -hmm. and so the only way to make it you know a meaningful system again is for people who have integrity to engage in it. The true working struggling working class voice where's that voice I think that's that one is really often lost in our in our dialogue and our conversation and as a country we act as though if, if you don't have uh, if you don't bring something to the table if you don't bring wealth if you don't bring um, uh, you know new ideas to the table then yeah. then your voice is worth nothing but it's not true it's not true so the voice of the working person we have to hear it we, the voice of young people we have to hear those voices I'm thinking of our friend Cleve Jones who yeah. um, and this is his, it's really channeling him. It's not my original idea, but he always, when people seem like despondent and there's not another thing we could possibly take on, he says, if you feel like there's nothing else you can do, just start marching. Uh -huh. um, and we're about to do, you know, the Pride Parade, which is really, as you know, the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, which was a riot. And that was a moment where there were marches and there have been riots here in San Francisco too, right after mm -hmm. Harvey Milk was shot. Yeah. And there is a way in which um, getting up and just starting to move in, mm -hmm. in whatever way that is, right? right? By you two doing this or going to Pride with Spencer in Baltimore yeah. mm -hmm. and holding the banner and, and just being present mm -hmm. and showing up, I think is like mm -hmm. the very first step into some journey that maybe you'll end up, you know, you're ending up somewhere. I'm enjoying your generation so much that the, the, the um, the lack of materialistic yeah. um, behavior, like the way that you all are taking this all very seriously, like yeah. you're taking the world and your and and your role here mm -hmm. is very seriously. Maybe, and then maybe you have to take yourself seriously too. But I really appreciate the sort of lack of trappings, like this lack of fixation on houses and cars and 
all of that and much more an idea of like, well, I'm here and I need to make a contribution mm -hmm. in some way. What are my talents? What's my superpower? Yeah. How am I going to channel that for good? And, and I really, so I think that comes across yeah. maybe sometimes like I'm here doing this yeah. versus, you know, wait a minute, you're super engaged and yeah. you're, you're at the beginning of your life, your adult life. Mm -hmm. And, and so much will change. That. I mean, yeah. in, our, in our youth, we could not have imagined there would be a thing called a computer yeah. in, in your living room. We could not have imagined that. What that would have seemed like crazy talk, right? Just like going, uh, like sending a man to the moon would have seemed like to our parents when they were young. We couldn't imagine a computer in every home. We couldn't imagine a smartphone or a cell phone right. as when we were young. We certainly couldn't imagine gay people getting married or, I mean, th those things were like when pigs can fly, those things happen. <laughs> yeah. So I would say you can't imagine the things that are going to happen in your lifetime. Wow. You can't imagine them because they, they seem too impossible right now. So when people say, you know, dream, I would say dream big because yeah. the, what's possible is, is actually big and would, would seem not possible, but there'll be, it will happen. Things will happen. And, and the more you can be a part of that, like how exciting is that? interview what happens 20s and change chris perry and sandy steer we just met with them and uh coincidentally a block away from the courthouse where basically they struck down prop 8 they made history and we had the chance to sit down with them and be with them and i think what 20s and change is all about is not just the people who are in their 20s making a difference, but the people who have that experience, who have that outlook, who care about people in their 20s. They have four sons who are making an impact. And I just feel so honored to be in the room with them and literally sit at a table with them to learn about their journey, embracing identity, and making a huge difference, not just for people here in the Bay Area, but worldwide, nationwide, yeah um it's it's a lot and i think the more i think about it it'll probably bring a tear more of a tear to my eye because it is so powerful but um we are this is a, an insane journey it's been a journey and i think something to give optimism to a world where you can easily get down about a lot of things is to see how they are still engaged in the political process two individuals that are just ordinary people that you couldn't ever expect to get so thrown into the system and they're still engaged and still passionate and left our interview to go out and still campaign and be advocates and be the voice of the people that's that's what it gives you hope and there's so many more people for us to meet that's our last group to meet during this trip there's a lot more to look forward to and it's beautiful seeing all these people who are walking down the street now with their rainbow flags and shirts and all of that and like their lives have been changed forever by Chris and Sandy and I hope that like our generation and Spencer and Elliot and their other son's generation will continue to make that difference and like build a better world that's to the point that they made uh, things that we could never even imagine. I'm looking forward to the next 20s and change, whatever that looks like. Keep impacting and go anywhere and do anything. <laughs>
globe chain, the biggest reused marketplace. Property manager for veterans having health issues. These are just a few of the people that we've interviewed. Emmy Award winning former White House correspondent. Annalisa Vandenberg, founder of Miles of Fortress. A survivor runner up and founder of Two Nonprofits. Precious Face Trout, she created the Black Female Project. A best-selling author and two-time cancer survivor. Creator of Brown Papaya Magazine and graphic designer. Researcher at Co. 2040. 500 queer science.